0: Now this morning we finished the book of 1 Kings, the first half of the book of Kings, and we'll be in 1 Kings 20 verses, 20, verses 41, rather, to 53, 1 Kings 22, verses 41 to 53. I invite you to turn there with me in the pew Bible ahead of you, page 568, and again the Passage 1 Kings 22. Before we read that, let's pray again. God, we have looked through the book of 1 Kings for the light. We have looked for the one, and as we come here, we recognize that we will not find it again. But that we do find it in Christ, we pray that you would bless us in his name. We do not want to go on without you. We do not want to have the preaching or the hearing or the reading of your word done without you. We pray that you would fill us with knowledge and understanding and humility. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 Kings 22. Jehoshaphat, son of Asa, became king of Judah in the fourth year of Ahab, king of Israel. Jehoshaphat was 35 years old when he became king and he reigned in Jerusalem 25 years. His mother's name was Azubah, daughter of Shilhai. In everything he walked in the ways of his father Asa and did not stray from them. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. The high places, however, were not removed, and the people continued to offer sacrifices and burn incense there. Jehoshaphat was also at peace with the king of Israel. As for the other events of Jehoshaphat's reign the things he achieved in his military exploits, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Judah? He rid the land of the rest of the male shrine prostitutes who remained there even after the reign of his father Asa. There was then no king in Edom, a deputy rule. Now Jehoshaphat built a fleet of trading ships to go to Ophir for gold, but they never set sail. They were wrecked at Ezion geber At that time, Ahaziah, son of Ahab, said to Jehoshaphat, Let my men sail with your men. But Jehoshaphat refused. Then Jehoshaphat rested with his fathers and was buried with them in the city of David, his father. And Jehoram, his son, succeeded him. Ahaziah, son of Ahab, became king of Israel in Samaria in the 17th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. And he reigned over Israel two years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord because he walked in the ways of his father and mother and in the ways of Jeroboam son of Nebat who caused Israel to sin. He served and worshipped Baal and provoked the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger, just as his father had done. You know, the scriptures are full of men, good men, even great men who had one or two glaring failures. You can think of, of Noah. Noah who built the ark, Noah who survived the the great flood which wiped out the rest of mankind. But what's the first thing Noah does when he gets off the ark? He plants a vineyard, he gets drunk, and he lays around naked. And then you have Abraham, Abraham the great man of faith through whom all the nations of the earth be blessed. But Abraham routinely passed off his wife Sarah as his sister because he was afraid. And then he took the slave woman, Hagar, as his wife to help god keep his promise as if god would need help and you can think of the great king david the great king david the liberator of people but there was that there was that nasty incident with uriah's wife and he was such a putrid father that his sons died and rebelled against him and then there's moses who crossed the red sea who saved the people who delivered the law of god to the people of God, but then also he murdered the Egyptian and struck the rock when God said he should speak to it. And you go to the New Testament, there's Peter. Peter the rock upon whom Christ would build his church. Peter the one who was the the first to confess Jesus as the Christ, but then is, well, Peter who denied the Lord three times. Peter who would have stopped the Lord from going to the cross, and Peter who would revert out of fear of the Jews into food customs and the the exclusion of Gentiles until Paul came to rebuke him. Scriptures are full of all kinds of, of men who are good, great, but have one glaring failure. Jehoshaphat is one such man. He's a good king. Even by many standards, Jehoshaphat was a great king. But he was a king with one glaring failure. It's been seven chapters since the author of Kings has spent any time really looking with any focus at a king of Judah. We've looked at all number of kings of Israel, but we've looked at very few kings of Judah. And while Omri and Ahab have been busy trying to kill prophets and committing the, the worst sin the promised land had ever seen, Israel is living in relative peace. And while Israel, while Judah is living in peace, while Israel is in turmoil and destruction, Judah has stability and is flourishing. We get the idea here that things are going just fine in Judah. The last time we saw a king of Judah was back in chapter 15. And since we were in chapter 15, we've looked at the reigns of the kings of Israel, of Nadab, Baasha, Elah, Zimri, Omri, and Ahab. When we look at the the last seven chapters, we, we get the idea that sin leads to destruction and death and disorder. Righteousness leads to peace, to stability, and to life. And so things have been rather boring in Judah, which is why there's no attention put on Judah. Things are boring. There's no prophet killing. There's no Elijah and the prophets of Baal. There's no fire from heaven. There's just been one king for 41 years. Asa was king for 41 years. And he was a righteous king. And then his son becomes king. And his son Jehoshaphat is king for 25 years. That's 66 years. Even allowing for a little bit of overlap in the way that they counted time in the ancient world where a part of a year was counted as a full year you have still at least 60 63 years of just two kings as a point of reference we've had 12 presidents in the last 66 years 66 years ago almost to the day president eisenhower was being inaugurated for his first term in that amount of time israel has only had two kings and they were both good kings and as is often the case, the apple didn't fall very far from the tree with Jehoshaphat. He resembles his father in many ways. Asa had been a, a very good king. He had gotten rid of idolatry. He had destroyed altars where idols were worshipped. He had kicked shrine prostitutes, whether they be female or sodomites, out of the land. He had restored Israel to, or Judah to a place of righteousness. And Jehoshaphat continues in that, even furthering his reforms and this is why the author of King speaks generally quite highly of Jehoshaphat but things aren't perfect as will be mentioned with a number of the kings of Judah the high places remained intact now these high places are like local churches it's a place where incense would be burned or where sacrifices would be offered now they were places where the true God was worshiped All right this wasn't a, this wasn't an altar to Baal or some other pagan god. This was a a place where the true God was worshipped, but God had said in his word that sacrifices and incense were only to be burned to him in the temple. And so even though the right God is being worshipped, he's not being worshipped in the right way. God not only cares that we worship or who we worship, but how we worship. And so even so, though this is not the way it should be, things are, are generally very good in the nation of Judah in the time of Jehoshaphat, and things are even great. When we look at this passage, and when we look at 2 Chronicles, which deals far more in depth with Jehoshaphat's reign, we get the idea that he is a very, very good king. And we see this because he has peace all over the place. And there was another king who had peace in the book of Kings. We started the Book of Kings by looking at King Solomon, by looking at King Solomon's David, David's greatest son, the, the, the king who would be king after David. And we began this series, remember this series is entitled The Quest for the King. And God had made a promise to David back in 2 Samuel chapter 7 that there was a king who was going to come, that there was going to be a great king They would come from his line, that there was going to be a king greater than David, that there was going to be a king whom even David would call Lord, that there was going to be an eternal king who would reign over an eternal kingdom. We've been looking for that one all through the book of 1 Kings, and we began thinking that maybe it would be Solomon. Solomon, who was wise, who was wealthy. Who built the temple. He builds this grand temple and God shows up in his glory. Certainly this must be the promised king. But then Solomon shows himself just to be a wise man in the ways of the world. And really just a wise fool. Because he marries all these pagan women. He lives in the ways of the world. He accumulates wealth for himself and prioritizes himself over the Lord. And so Solomon passes from the scene. The last thing we see of Solomon is that he worships idols. And so the looking for the king, the quest for the king continued, and now we come to Jehoshaphat. Now it's good for us to remember that the books of First and 2 Kings are just one book. Sometimes things happen just for matters of convenience. This is one of those cases. In the in the ancient world, you could only fit so many things on a scroll. A scroll could only be so big. And so they took the one book of kings and they cut it in half so that it could fit on two different scrolls. That's how we get the books of First and Second Kings. It's just one book. But sometimes things are cut in half at very convenient places. And this is one of those times. Because we see that the book of kings is bookended. The book of First Kings is bookended by kings that are in ways great. And Jehoshaphat and Solomon are both, in some ways, great kings. In fact, as we look at the reign of Jehoshaphat, we're we're supposed to see signs of Solomon everywhere. He has peace on all his borders, just like Solomon did. He receives tribute from all the nations around him, just like Solomon had. All the nations around him are terrified of him, and they pay him not to attack them. And then we see as well that he reigns over Edom, just as Solomon had. Look with me at verse 47. Verse 47 is what I would call biblical flyover territory. I think Kings is flyover territory. It's not a place that most of us would stop in the first place. But verse 47 is flyover territory within flyover territory. It says, there was then no king in Edom, a deputy ruled. Who cares? Right, what does this have to do with anything? Why would this be mentioned? Well, if you, if you go back to the earlier part of the Book of Kings, we see that when Solomon was king, he was king over Edom. And the idea of a deputy is that this is not really a king, but this is somebody that Jehoshaphat appointed to rule over Edom. That Jehoshaphat, like Solomon before him, was king over Edom. And we're meant to read this and jump all the way back to the beginning of Kings and say, well, maybe this Jehoshaphat is the guy we're looking for. He has peace like Solomon. He is a son of David like Solomon. He receives tribute from other nations like Solomon. And he's a son of David like Solomon. And if we read the Bible forward, not backwards, if we read the Bible forward as if we don't know how it ends, we begin to get hope. We begin to think, well, maybe this is the guy. You know, Solomon had a lot of things going for him. This guy has a lot of things going for him. He's, he's wealthy. He's powerful. The nations fear him. But this guy is righteous. Solomon blew it with the idols. But this guy gets it. He doesn't blow with the idols. In fact, he destroys idols. He kicks the idolaters out of his kingdom. Everything that Solomon messed up, it seems, this guy does well. Maybe this is God's promised king. And then we see even another similarity. Jehoshaphat builds a fleet. Solomon was the last king to build a fleet. He had built a fleet for the purpose of trading it. Went off and traded and came back with apes and gold and all kinds of things. And Jehoshaphat builds a fleet as well. So we have another similarity, peace and tribute and Edom and David's son. Now a fleet. So the question is, will this king be the one that we are looking for? And the answer is no. Because here our hopes for the great king get dashed on the rocks the same as his fleet. Gets dashed on the rocks. Look with me at verse 48. Now, Jehoshaphat built a fleet of trading ships to go to Ophir for gold, but they never set sail. They were wrecked at Ezion Geber. Solomon's fleets went out and traded, and they came back with great wealth, but Jehoshaphat's fleets never get out of port. It fails before it gets started. Not only will Jehoshaphat not be greater than Solomon, he won't even be as great as Solomon. He falls short, and he fails, and he leaves us wanting. And the question is, why? Why did he fail? And the answer is given back in the portion of First Kings we read the last time we were together in Kings. And it goes back to this alliance he made with Ahab. Ahab had asked Jehoshaphat to come out with him to war. he asked him to help to have a, a mutual defense treaty that they would send their armies out together, and Jehoshaphat made peace with King Ahab. Even he married Ahab's daughter, Athaliah, to seal the treaty. Just like Solomon blew it, with marrying pagans, so Jehoshaphat blows it by marrying pagans. We see this venture fails in verse 49. At that time Ahaziah, son of Ahab, said to Jehoshaphat, let my men sail with your men. But Jehoshaphat refused. These fleets weren't just Jehoshaphat's fleets. This was a, a mutual voyage. This was a partnership between him and Ahab and Ahaziah, the wicked kings of Israel. And we see this implied here in this passage, but it's made explicit in 2 Chronicles 19. In 2 Chronicles 19, we have an interaction between a prophet and King Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat is returning from war. It's the same war that Ahab had called him out to fight. That was the same war, the same battle against the Arameans. And if you were here, you'll remember that that was the battle in which Ahab died. This random Aramean archer, the text says, pulled his bow and shot in innocence or in ignorance. And the word of the Lord carried the arrow at just the right vector, at just the right velocity, and pins it right inside this this minuscule gap in his armor. And Ahab dies standing up in his chariot. Well, Jehoshaphat lives, and he goes back home. And instead of going back home and having relief, he goes back home, and the first thing that happens is he's met by a prophet. And we read this in 2 Chronicles 19, verse 2, But Jehu, the son of Hanani, the seer, went out to meet him, and said to King Jehoshaphat, Should you help the wicked and love those who hate the Lord? Because of this, wrath has gone out against you from the Lord. Nevertheless, some good is found in you, for you destroyed the Asheroth out of the land and have set your heart to seek God. Jehoshaphat has some good, even a lot of good, but even still, God's wrath goes out against him. Why? Because he loved and partnered with those who hate the Lord. This becomes even more explicit when we read further on in 2 Chronicles It says, after Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, joined with Ahaziah, king of Israel, who acted wickedly, he joined him in building ships to go to Tarshish. And they built the ships in Ezion-Geber. Then Eliezer, the son of Dodabahu of Marashah, prophesied against Jehoshaphat, saying, because you have joined with Ahaziah, the Lord will destroy what you have made. And the ships were wrecked and were not able to go to Tarshish. So we have... We have more similarities between Jehoshaphat and Solomon. They both had peace. They both got tribute. They both ruled over Edom. They both were sons of David. They both built fleets. And they both married foolishly. They both made pragmatic alliances with those who hated God, and they both died. We see that in verse 50. And Jehoshaphat rested with his fathers and was buried with them in the city of David, his father And Jehoram, his son, succeeded him as kings. These two kings, they have so much in common greatness mixed with total failure. They both leave us wanting, they both leave us unsatisfied, they both leave us waiting. They're both dead. They both let us down. So why? Why did they do it? Why did they fail? They failed simply because of this. They forgot that they were different. They forgot that they had a better hope. They forgot that the people of God are different. The people of God are to act differently. They forgot that there is an eternal difference between those who love the Lord and those who hate the Lord. And they failed to trust the Lord. We see time and time and time again the necessity of trusting the Lord and the way the Lord always comes through. How did Noah survive the flood? By faith. How did Abraham become the father of Isaac? Not through the slave woman, but through his old, barren wife by faith. How did Moses cross the Red Sea? Not with the greatest bridge ever known to man. He crossed the Red Sea by faith in the power of God. How did David kill the giant? By faith in the power of God. And where did Solomon fail? And where did Jehoshaphat fail? They failed because they failed to trust in the power of God. The people of God don't do things the normal way. The people of God are people of faith. One of my favorite Proverbs comes from Proverbs 13, verse 20. It says, whoever walks with the wise becomes wise. But the companion of fools will suffer harm. Isn't that true here? Jehoshaphat had everything going for him. He had power. He had stability. He had right worship. He had resiliency. But then he teams up with the idolatrous, God-hating, prophet-killing Ahab. Now why on earth would Jehoshaphat, who loves the Lord, why would he team up with Ahab, who hates the Lord? He suffered for it. And Solomon suffered for it. They suffered because they forgot that they belonged to God. And they operated by faith, not by sight. Psalmist says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. The companion of fools suffers harm. Solomon was the companion of fools with his pagan wives. Jehoshaphat is a companion of fools with his relationship with Ahab. Paul says this do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? And what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? This is not just an Old Testament concept, but this is a New Testament concept as well. What is the thing that, which plagues the kings of Israel and Judah from the beginning of kings all the way to its end? The thing which plagues them most is that instead of trusting God, they entrusted themselves to those who hated God and they walked with fools. And we would be fools to think that the same temptation does not exist for us today. We too can be tempted to walk in the ways of the world instead of walking by faith. We too can have fellowship with darkness. We too can be companions of faith. Fools. We can be companions of fools in the schools we go to which teach an anti-Christian, unbiblical worldview. We can be fools in who we choose to be friends with when we go to these schools, whether they be, whether they be government schools or whether they be private schools, whatever. We may be fools. We may be fellowship with darkness when we partner with unbelievers in business ventures where our ethics and our values are not shared by our partner's ethics and values, where we may be pulled towards wickedness and out of integrity and righteousness. We might fellowship with darkness in our dating relationships or in our marriages. You can walk with fools in what you watch on the television or what books you read or in the entertainments that you indulge. There are as many different ways to walk with fools as there are people in this sanctuary, times 10,000. We are always tempted to accommodate to the way of the world. Paul says, what fellowship does light have with darkness? The companion of fools Suffers harm. That, it, that is, that our closest relationships, our dearest friends, our greatest commitment of time should be with the wise, the ones who love God, and not with the fools or those who hate Him. This is a lesson for a, for a church. The lesson for our church in this as well. Jehoshaphat had all the right policies. He was anti-idolatry, anti-immorality, anti-cult. He was pro-God, he was pro judah he was pro-trade. But where he failed is he got pragmatic. And he decided instead of trusting God to protect him, he would trust Ahab, the God-hater, to protect him. And even while he had all the right policies in some areas, he let pragmatism, he let things which would be easier to see and to feel creep in through policies in other places. And he suffered for it. And churches can do the same thing. We can do so many things right. Or we can give up just in certain areas. Recently, I've been hearing reports, quite a few of them, I'm not sure why all of a sudden it's the case, but I've been hearing reports from all over the place that people I know have gone and visited at churches for this reason or that, baptisms or whatever it may be, and they, they come back and they say, you know, I went to this church and while I was there I sat through the whole service and nobody read the Bible, nobody preached the Word. There was no sermon. It was two guys up on the stage talking to each other about how they they know the Lord, but nobody ever actually preached the Word of the Lord. And what's the idea? The idea is that if we do things in a a non-intimidating way, if we just sit and have a conversation instead of preaching God's Word authoritatively, people might like it more and they might come to faith. But we forget something in that. We forget that it is Christ who builds His church. And we forget the way that Christ builds His church. He builds His church by the power of His Spirit through the preaching of the Word. The disciples didn't sit and have a roundtable discussion at Pentecost. They preached the Word. So that everybody there could hear it. And they preached with conviction and with power. And they preached Christ crucified and raised. They didn't have laser light shows. They didn't have nice, non-threatening conversations. They didn't neglect the Word. They preached the Word. It's so easy. It's so easy to become pragmatic and say what? What is it that we can do that will bring more people in? What is it that we can do that will lower ourselves to the lowest common denominator and spread ourselves a mile wide and a half an inch deep? But that's not what God calls us to. He calls us to preach and to sing and to pray and to baptize and to fellowship and to eat the Lord's Supper together. He calls us to a deep, rich, significant, meaningful worship. He doesn't call us to what is easy or what is popular. He calls us to what is powerful. He doesn't call us to build His kingdom. You will never once read in the Scriptures that it is our job to build His kingdom. God builds His kingdom. God builds His kingdom by the preaching of the Word, by prayer, by the songs of the saints. It is our job to pray, and what do we pray? Your kingdom come. Because God brings his kingdom. We are merely citizens in his kingdom who are to live in obedience to him, not becoming partners with the ways of the world, but instead being partners with Christ. We can do this as well in other areas. We can do this in the discipleship of our children. We can compromise with the world. We can become pragmatic in the ways of the world, in the ways that we as, as parents or as a church family expect things from our children. The world expects almost nothing from children. The world expects almost nothing in the way of obedience or honor to parents or to authority. And it is very easy for us to become pragmatic. To do what is easy and to allow children to violate the fifth commandment over and over and over and over and over again. It's very easy to do what is easy. To let attitudes and behaviors that have no place in a Christian home or a Christian church go unchecked. It's easy to leave church for lunch. And get home for lunch sooner so that our children don't go to Sunday school. It's easy to sleep in and all the while communicate to our children that obedience to the command to love the Lord your God with all your heart is optional. It's easy. It's easy to expect next to nothing from our children. It's a lot easier than doing discipleship and discipline. It's easy to not expect our children to memorize scripture or the catechism because, well, it's kind of hard. It's easy not to expect them to read the Bible because maybe they won't like it. But we're not called to do things that are easy. We're not called to raise our children like the world raises children. We're called to discipleship. called as Paul says in Ephesians 6, to bring them up in the training and the instruction of the Lord. It was easy for Jehoshaphat to make an alliance with Ahab. It took faith. It would take faith not to. It's easy to raise our children like everybody else raises their children. It takes faith to train them up in the way of the Lord. Now, there are any number of other ways, as a church, we could fall into the same trap. One that comes to mind is a very unpopular topic, things like church discipline. It's kind of a scary word, discipline. Discipline is the pits. Church discipline is terrible. Nobody likes to do it. Nobody likes to be confronted with their sin, and I don't know anybody who particularly enjoys going to confront someone with their sin, yet that's what the Lord calls us to. The Lord calls us to be a people of humility. The Lord calls us to be a people of confession and of confrontation. He calls us not to be a people who are tolerant of our sin and not to be a people who are tolerant of sin inside the church. He calls us to be like shepherds, to go and and gently bring back those who have strayed And if they will not leave the broad road that leads to destruction to come back to the narrow road that leads to life, he calls us to expel them from our fellowship. Why? Not because we're big meanies, but because what fellowship does light have to do with darkness? What does Ahab have to do with Jehoshaphat? Nothing. It's easier not to easier to hide behind culturalisms like don't judge. But that's not what the word calls us to. The word calls us to mercy. And the word calls us to vigilance. These kings compromised. And they fell short. And they died. And as we come to the end of 1 Kings, we're still wanting, we're still waiting. 22 chapters in, and as the song says, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. And we're going to go through the book of 2 Kings as well. And we're not going to find what we're looking for there either. Solomon wasn't the king he was supposed to be. Jehoshaphat isn't greater than Solomon, and neither will Hezekiah be or Josiah. It won't be until we come to Bethlehem, and to Galilee, to Calvary, and to the empty tomb that we find one that we're looking for. And if we jump forward to Matthew 12, we read this. Jesus says the Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Something greater than Solomon. That's what we're looking for in Kings. That's what we've been promised. And we haven't found him yet in Kings. And we won't find him in Kings. But we will find him. And we have found him in Christ. Let's pray together. Lord God, as we have trekked through 22 chapters in the book of Kings, we have had impressed upon us a number of things, but perhaps the greatest of which is that we are to trust your word, that every word proves true that any time we vary from it, destruction follows. Disobedience leads to death, righteousness, and obedience leads to life. Lord, we thank you that we will in time, and we already have in our lives, come to the great king, who is greater than Solomon, and greater than the temple, who is David's greatest son, the eternal king, the king of kings. We pray we might be obedient to him, and we pray as we were taught to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. May your will be done in our lives, in our church, and in this, your world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.